0: Hello and welcome to Tactics and Operations, the official podcast of the Marine Corps Tactics and Operations Group. I'm your host, Major Rob Malcolm. Please note, all of the opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not reflect those of MCTOG, MAGTAF-TC, the U.S. Marine Corps, or any other agency of the U.S. Government. For any organization, it's important to question its core beliefs and doctrine from time to time and make sure that it's still valid. And that's one of the reasons why a couple weeks ago on the show, we talked to Lieutenant Colonel John Mikesner about his valid criticisms of maneuver warfare and particularly of MCDP-1. And so as we're doing this series on maneuver warfare for the show, I wanted to make sure to, to hear some other voices that are skeptical or critical of maneuver warfare as well. And so that's why today we're talking to Lieutenant Colonel Tad Drake, who wrote an article in the Gazette in 2020 entitled The Fantasy of MCDP-1. Lieutenant Colonel Drake has served as the Operations Officer of 3rd Recon Battalion and Inspector Instructor of 1st Battalion 24th Marines. He is also a graduate of the School of Advanced Warfighting and is currently conducting a Security Studies Fellowship at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Sir welcome to the show.
1: Hey, happy to be here.
0: So I'm curious, could you uh, tell us a little bit about the security studies program that you're in right now?
1: Sure. the uh, The MIT security studies program is uh, it's it's been a longstanding political science program, I guess is what you call it, starting way back in the Cold War, and, and they did a lot of work back at, at the time on on nuclear deterrence. Um, you know, they worked with uh, RAND a great deal. And worked with the military as as we were building a lot of deterrence models, and then and then obviously once the Cold War ended, uh, the, the focus changed a bit. But during that entire time, or almost that entire time, each of the military services has sent a military fellow uh, to participate, uh, both as a student to some degree. Uh, I get to take classes, and I participate in a, a bunch of different PhD classes, and also as someone a practitioner who can who can provide input to a lot of the PhDs who are who are finishing up their time at the MIT Security Studies Program and then moving on into either the policy world or the academic world, or, or sometimes they move back and forth in both.
0: That's awesome, and, and I think that's, yeah, it's just so important to get that cross-pollination of ideas the way people in academia think uh, can bring a lot of value to us as practitioners and vice versa, and so to, to make sure that we're always interacting between those two worlds and sharing our ideas, uh, it sounds like an awesome program. I hope you're enjoying it.
1: Yeah, it's it's been fantastic. Um, I've already gotten to spend a lot of time with some some real legends in the security study field. You know, Barry Posen, obviously, is mm. well known. I, I actually cited him in the MCDP one argument or article. Excuse me. I, I spent a good bit of time with him, and and I get to sit in some of his classes. And, and there are several other folks who are just you know really well known in the field and you know, who've done some amazing scholarship. And it's 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 been great.
0: Awesome. So, uh, if we could start off with, uh, we, you know, I don't want to just rehash the article and anybody can go find that on, uh, the Marine Corps association website and, and they should in, in the interest of exposing ourselves to, to outside ideas, uh, questioning our shibboleths and really applying that critical thinking. But, uh, I, I, to start off with, could you kind of just summarize your feelings on, maneuver warfare in general and and mcdp1 specifically
1: sure um a couple things to say up front before even that um first you you mentioned the the podcast with john meixner and and i'll just say you know i I, many of my feelings are the same as as the the things that you talked about in that podcast so if anybody if if anyone listening has not listened to that one i highly recommended it it was it was good um i will note though that almost all of the arguments that 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 podcast threw around and that we'll probably throw around here are are not new um they're not the least bit new if you go back to the mid to late 80s and then after fmf and one was written the early 90s you can find articles that say almost exactly the same things or you can find books that say almost exactly the same things that that kind of the i guess folks who are skeptical of mcdp1 and maneuver warfare are saying right now Mm. uh i think the difference that i would that i would that I would highlight now is that we're looking with 30 years of hindsight. um, And the folks who are kind of pointing at MCDP one, you know, I I called it a fantasy in in my article a couple of years ago, the folks who are pointing at it, at least the argument that I would make is that we're we're pointing at it and saying, you know, we've been at war for most of the time since this was written. Are we doing what we say we're supposed to be doing or have we been doing the things that we say we're supposed to have been doing? Uh, So that's, that's kind of the, you know, the, the first thing I'd bring up. The second thing I'd bring up, and just to kind of to tie into that, you mentioned the fantasy article. Uh, I did not get a single piece of negative feedback from that article. Uh, I got a lot of positive feedback, and you know I think that probably shows something. Uh, you know, for for <laughs> one, it may show that nobody read it. But two, <laughs> if if we assume that the Marine Corps kind of the, the the thought leaders within our service are reading the Gazette. I I think that probably shows that there is a a much greater feeling of skepticism than uh, a lot of folks would like to acknowledge. So those are, those are kind of two opening statements. Uh, As far as my feelings on MCDP one personally, uh, I I think it's fantastic. I love MCDP one. It's a, it's a great book. It reads really well. It's intelligent. It's convincing. Uh, and I, I I think I'm afraid that it's wholly inappropriate for the modern Marine Corps um for a host of different reasons that I think we'll we'll talk about everything from its unfalsifiability like you talked like you talked to John Mikesner about what it what it is intended to do what it you know as a doctrine is it in fact uh something that we can apply and then you know obviously a lot of the the testability things that I just brought up uh maybe most importantly I think we have a culture even now after 30 years that is just inherently resistant to the things that mcdp1 says and it's going to be it, it has been and will continue to be incredibly difficult to to, to move beyond the, the the cultural resistance um that mcdp1 is gonna it ha, has has will and continues to generate within the marine corps um, so that's my my long answer to a short question <laughs>
0: Well, I'm, yeah i'm sure we could uh yeah i'm sure we could spend hours just uh trying to answer that one question um but i, I, I you know i appreciate you and and lieutenant mikesner as well explaining that you know for, for anybody that sees the title of these episodes and is like oh boy you know here's a here's a naysayer here's an attritionist that's just gonna um you know just gonna bash mcdp1 no like <laughs> The three of us uh we we love mcdp1 i mean it's it's like lieutenant Colonel meissner said it's it's one of the most impactful things uh on his life and i would i would say the same so this is not we're we're not saying it's bad um we're we are really trying to come up with some constructive criticism here um uh, for anybody that's that's concerned that this is just uh you know gonna turn into like a angry internet veteran type discussion here uh no we're, we're trying to figure out you know what things um possibly need to change about it and uh and but but not throw the baby out with the bathwater. uh so the 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 first part of your article talks about the goal of maneuver warfare as written in in mcd or fmfm1 and mcdp1 um uh, you describe it as systemic collapse uh can you explain what that means
1: Yes, and, and I'd like to, but before you do that, I want to go, I want to back up a little bit. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm completely zooming backwards in our conversation, but I, I think it's important. In, in the paper, I mentioned this just a little bit, and I think it's important for, for all of us to think about. And that's the question what is doctrine for? Hmm. I mean, that, that, that is the biggest question that we, you know, anyone who's detracting MCDP 1 from MCDP 1 about, or, you know, anyone who's talking about Marine Corps doctrine or, or Navy doctrine or, or joint doctrine, has to answer that exact question. What is doctrine for? You know, it, and there's lots of people who have lots of different opinions on what it's for. Um, but there, in, within the Marine Corps, there's there's really a, to me, there's a very obvious divide, and that divide is the people who think that doctrine says basically here's how we intend to fight, and then there's a different set of people who think basically doctrine says here's the way in a perfect world we ought to try to think we, we should fight. And, and those are two very different things. You know, I, I can imagine a perfect world where MCDP-1 would work beautifully, um, you know, and, and, and there are these columns of things that look a lot like panzers driving through a place that looks a lot like France causing systemic collapse, but that's maybe not the real world that we live in. And it, in, in that case, a doctrine that says what we ought to do is not very useful because we're going to execute the things that we execute. And so, you know, that that difference between aspirational doctrine and an actual practical doctrine is an important one. And and we have a hard time, I think, in the Marine Corps and, and in some of the other services as well, articulating exactly what our doctrine is for, you know, or or maybe we should scrap that word entirely and call MCDP one a philosophy, which which mm-hmm. does make a lot of sense to me. Um, but that that to me is is an important kind of entering conversation into the, the nuts and bolts of it, systemic collapse and and the other things that we'll talk about.
0: Yeah, I I agree. I I've I've often thought we've got we've got the MCDP McWhip thing backwards. Uh what we call the MCDPs or the white books uh really are more philosophy than than how to. Uh and so why aren't those called the Marine Corps warfighting publications and the McWhips which get into tactics, techniques, procedures? Why are those not called the Marine Corps doctrinal publications?
1: Yeah, I I think that's the, that's a great point. And, and, you know, like I, like I mentioned before we started the podcast, I, I've been reading uh, recently for the Scary Studies program, just finished reading On War again, reading Clausewitz again. Um, and and he spends a lot of time wrestling with this exact question. He's trying to build a theory. You know, what, what's his theory for? Well, it's for a number of different things. But he spends a great deal of time trying to explain why he's not giving us prescriptive ways to do things and why he's not giving us a set of rules. And I think the Marine Corps is still struggling with the exact same problem that he was struggling with. We just have, you know, he's got 700 pages of of high German that write about it. We've got a hundred page long white book that maybe doesn't do it quite as well.
0: Mm. And so while, kind of while we're on the subject, you know, like I mentioned, you're, you're a graduate of saw, do you mind asking where did you do your planner payback tour?
1: uh i worked for general donovan out of task force 515 so that was at the time i got there right when i got there it was fifth meb and amphibious task force 5-1 uh, or naval amphibious force 5-1 and then i showed up at exactly the same time general donovan did and, and he directed that we we slam it together and turn it into a, a strange mix of marine corps and navy that turned out to be quite effective
0: that's awesome and, and the reason i'm asking is because you know obviously then you you've had uh you know 515 like you said is is a marine corps uh navy formation but i'm I'm sure you've had a lot of interaction with the rest of the joint force the the other services don't have anything like mcdp1 or really any of the white books they don't have this sort of philosophical level thing underpinning all of you know the rest of their doctrine have you what is the effect on those services i mean is there any do you notice any like negative effect i mean what does it matter that they don't have that or do they get along just fine without it
1: i i think you can find people who will make arguments in every direction for that statement <laughs> Um my experience with the navy was that you know generally generally speaking it, it did not we, the navy did not suffer on a day-to-day basis from a lack of, of kind of doctrinal underpinnings. Although they did, they did at the time have um, what maybe warfare publication one, maybe, or, or one of, you know, something that sounded a little bit like an MCDP one where they, they were trying to lay out some basic principles. I haven't read it for a couple of years, so I don't remember if it's still, if it's still in play for them. But I, I, I do think that, you know, and, and you and John, Mike's sort are of talked about it a little bit that there, there are some fundamental differences in, in our doctrine, and maybe this is a good lead-in into the, the systemic collapse conversation, there, there's some fundamental differences in our doctrine as it's written, and, and other services, both what they say they would seek to do and what they, they actually kind of have to do because of the nature of the, of the service. You know, we, you talked about naval warfare being a, attrition warfare fundamentally, and, and uh, Wayne Hughes famously wrote that, and, and, and I think he's right, that naval warfare, to some degree, is, is counting ships as you destroy them with missiles or, you know, back in world war two, long range airplanes or, or big guns. Um, and, and that that's a fundamental problem. And it's one that the Marine Corps is going to continue to have to grapple with because we have this doctrine that says we're looking for systemic collapse. And we're simultaneously saying we're operating in support of the fleet commander, or we're operating in support of the joint force commander. And it's, it's a, it's a hard question when you say, well, what if the joint force commander doesn't want you to collapse the enemy system for whatever reason? And, and, it's 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 one that we will have to continue to grapple with and figure out do we need to build a doctrine that says well we'll seek to collapse the enemy system except when we won't <laughs> and and that what's the point
0: yeah i'm just i'm trying to go through in my head and think what you know what would that what would systemic collapse mean you know in the in the naval uh context i mean yeah i mean i guess you collapse the uh, the system of fleet if you if you take out the flagship and it's and it's a uh, commander but i mean that's not it's hard to hard to to justify how that would be maneuver warfare if it's literally just you know find the right ship and destroy that ship uh that, is that really is that really exploiting a critical vulnerability is that really exploiting a gap it's really just like destroying any other ship so definitely some and- some mismatch there
1: and to your point, I mean, even if we want to say that's maneuver warfare and it's it's collapsing the enemy system, I think you could probably, I can at least imagine a scenario where, say, the fleet commander, who's got a bunch of little small marine units running around seeking to collapse systems, doesn't actually want to destroy that flagship because maybe it's an aircraft carrier and destroying an aircraft carrier is inherently escalatory or, or some such thing. And so the fleet commander is not at all interested in that, but because we've got all of our small units collapsing the enemy system using mission tactics, often alone and unafraid. Uh, maybe, maybe they have a completely different interpretation and, and, and seek to do just that.
0: Yeah. And I think this is not the only reason it's, it's probably one of many reasons why there's a lot of angst and pushback over things like uh, MLR, like the Marine littoral regiment, because that thing is not designed to collapse systems. I mean, it's, it, Arguably, doesn't have that capability, even if that's what we wanted it to do. But I think it's pretty clear that that is not what it's designed to do. So is that yeah, at odds I, with our, you know, with our service philosophy?
1: I think I think there is a lot of of thinking that we have to do on how exactly we're going to overlay, call it the Sea denial mission set, call it, you know, the the the, the stuff that's come out and some of our other recent concepts you know, reconnaissance counter reconnaissance maybe has has a little more maneuver flavor to it, but, but to what end, I I think, as you say, I think there is a lot of room for a lot of thinking about if we intend to keep MCDP one as our service doctrine, doesn't need to have things added into it to support the concepts that we're coming up with, or does it need to be scrapped and, and, and we build something around the concepts that we're coming up with, which is fine too, if they're the right concepts for a future war.
0: Yeah. And, and we can, You know we could think about i mean there there have been times even in the marine corps history where there have been really more than one marine corps you know in the in the interwar period with the uh, advanced base force and then going into uh testing out amphibious doctrine um, that was part of the marine corps and then there was another part of the marine corps that was designed and and you know was assumed that it would fight differently so and that's a whole nother conversation that we haven't wrestled with in about 80 years, but is, is there, do we design multiple Marine Corps? And I think to some extent, that's what we're kind of seeing with third Marine division, uh, aligning to MLRs with first uh, and second continuing to generate infantry and artillery and, and all these, the, the more standard formations.
1: And, and that may be the right answer moving forward. I, I, in fact, I heard the assistant commandant just this morning say, you know, the, the history of warfare, and, and you've heard this before, is, is the history of American warfare, at least, is us completely misunderstanding or guessing wrong on, on what the next war or what the future will look like. Um, and, and so perhaps having multiple Marine Corps focused in, in slightly different areas will increase the likelihood that we, we don't get it completely wrong. you know or or makes us makes us more likely to get it at least a little bit right maybe is is a good Mm -hmm. way to phrase
0: it yeah and and on that point uh i think which which you make in the in the article that you, you never get these things right i mean whether we're talking at that service level or we're talking at the tactical level when we're going through design methodology and trying to suss out what you know and really just describe that enemy system so we can figure out how to collapse it. Like, we're never going to get that completely correct. And, uh, you know, as the, as the service looks to integrate the concept of defeat mechanisms into doctrine for the first time into Marine Corps doctrine for the first time, uh, this is, this is something I, I, I'm, I fear that we're going to put it in as Something that we choose that you know the the commander chooses the enemy's defeat mechanism, and that is not the case. you don't get to decide what that defeat mechanism is. you get to guess at it, and that guess should be informed and it should inform your planning, but you have to understand that you're not dictating it to the enemy
1: yeah that that's a good point it's a great point um you know and this is this is one of those things that. MCMP-1 wrestles with a little bit, although it says that we're going to collapse the enemy system everywhere and all the time. It also talks a lot about interactivity and, and the complexity of warfare, and that's kind of – that's exactly what we're, what you're getting at. I mean, heck, that's what Colossus was getting at in 1830 when he wrote, when he wrote on war. There's a big, almost a, a similar line of reasoning, and you can find in there. We We can attempt to dictate something, as you say but the enemy gets a vote and the enemy will react and things will change and they're going to change almost regardless of what we do. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense to seek to do something to the enemy, but the enemy is also seeking to do something to us. And that, that is something, uh, Americans in general, and, and those of us who fought, you know, in, in the, in the counterinsurgency type wars of the last 15 to 20 years, or I guess the last 20 years or so, um, got, got really, really comfortable with, you know, <laughs> I can I can do what I want to to those insurgent forces, but that is probably not a good a good thing to get comfortable with and, and used to.
0: Yeah, certainly. The more you the more you convince yourself that you get to dictate that that it's that it's a you know, just because I planned it this way that's the way it's going to go. I think you're actually setting yourself up for the kind of moral and, and mental shock that we're actually trying to impose on the enemy. Um, you're you're setting yourself up to be susceptible to that the more you believe your own myths so another point you made and, and I don't you know full full disclosure I don't agree with everything in your article sir but uh but i you know but I agree with a lot of it and i, I certainly think again it, this is not uh an angry veteran rant here I mean th- these are very well thought out points so you talk about essentially that the, the okay systems we can we can maybe collapse the system and we can we can discuss about some times in history where where that has occurred you know i talked to uh dr bruce goodmanson a couple weeks ago about you know probably the most famous example of that happening or or at least that's the interpretation that that happened in france in 1940 but system the, the systems don't stay collab it means the the system reforms there there's never there's usually not a vacuum here so we may collapse one system it will rise again in a different form and you do you believe mcdp1 adequately addresses that
1: no i I don't um and and years ago i had a conversation with with the lead author of mcdp1 john schmidt and and i think he conceded that point as well um, when we had, I don't think he would remember that conversation. It was, it was at command and staff, but I, I think, I think a lot of people who have looked at MCDP one concur, concur that that, you know, system in a world where open systems are the things that we are dealing with, which is, which is all of them, you know, they're not just going to fall apart and, and sit on the ground like a bunch of broken toys. Um, it, it doesn't work that way. And, you know, you, you mentioned France in 1940, even France in 1940, I just happen to be listening to a biography of De Gaulle right now you know, without some very unique and and very interesting dynamics at the top of the leadership pyramid in France, they might have continued to restructure and reform their system into something that resisted the Germans even more. Um, so, you know, it's one thing to say that the French military just collapsed. Well, sort of it did, but there were other portions and pieces of the French military that did not collapse. and And that's something that we don't, we don't, to think about maybe quite as much because the the story of the Blitzkrieg is so compelling, um, and it 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 provides a lot of a lot of evidence for things that we might want to think we see that that maybe we don't see as clearly uh, as as we could. To your point about the system reforming, you know, there's even before that there's there's the problem of understanding the nature of the system in general. Um, MCDP one on page one says that warfighting systems or I've got MCV-1 here right now. I can look at it. But it, it says something of the nature of, you know, systems in warfare are inherently nonlinear. Yeah, one, one important source of uncertainty is a property known as nonlinearity. And then it gets into the what those systems are. Well, if if we're dealing only with nonlinear systems, the, the implication there is that we can't possibly predict what those systems are going to do when we start messing with pieces and parts of them. And that, that's, that's kind of the nature of a nonlinear system. So uh, it, it's maybe even a little bit hubristic to think that we are going to collapse the enemy system if we can't even really understand it, because all of the enemy systems are, in fact, nonlinear, and the interaction between their complex system and our complex system is going to result in something that we can't understand or predict.
0: Absolutely. We, in like a, in, in the episode the other day, talked about this a little bit with uh, with Dr. Gibbonson, that there's a lot of counterfactuals what happened in 1940 didn't have to happen that way and what actually collapsed the the French high command collapsed but there were there it was certainly was not that the entire the Western allies you know lost the ability to carry on the fight um so there that that could have gone different ways certainly you know in the article you talk about in in the American experience at least since since we codified this with uh air battle and fmfm1 there's really only two things you could point to uh, and that's desert storm and then operation iraqi freedom one the invasion in 2003 that you could argue and and gets argued a lot that that is examples of maneuver warfare why why do you why do you disagree with that why do you think those are not those should not be looked at as examples of MCDP one being put into practice.
1: So, I use those examples to highlight different parts of potential problems with the idea of systemic collapse. Um, the first was was somewhat related to the conversation we were having a minute ago regarding naval warfare, which was as the the attack into Kuwait was was happening in uh, in, in Operation Desert Storm in in ninety one. 1st Marine Division was tasked to hold right, or fix Iraqi forces in Kuwait in order to allow a, a big left hook to get around and, and essentially trap the Iraqi Republican Guard. What, what ended up happening was 1st Marine Division did exactly what our doctrine says and penetrated the enemy system, and instead of fixing like they were told to do, they, they shook that system apart, and what happened is the Iraqis retreated too fast for the big left hook, the rest of the, the, the coalition force, to trap the Republican Guard. That obviously had some, some ripple effects in the future as you know, Iraqi forces reconstituted. Uh, we, we had some problems where Saddam Hussein kept his hold on power, which we didn't expect, killed a whole lot of Shia as they rebelled in the south and, and had some problems with the same issue uh, as the Kurds rebelled in the north a bit and then to some degree that that formation kept saddam hussein in power all the way up until 2003 so uh, i'm not suggesting that the first marine division's attack uh you know through the minefield in 1991 was the the thing that kept saddam hussein in power but first marine division did not accomplish the task assigned to it it instead penetrated the enemy system and and essentially foiled the joint force commanders operation operational concept i suppose
0: So, so you could you could look at that as an example of mcdp1 put into practice but probably the the fault there is not understanding the single battle and collapsing the system at the at the wrong echelon so or or at the expense of having the potential to collapse the system at the higher level which would like you said if we had been able to neutralize the republican guard you know which is a large you know, source of strength for for Saddam's regime, then the his entire regime may have collapsed, and that would have obviously that would have changed the history of the '90s and the, the early 2000s quite a bit.
1: Yeah, no question. And and by no means was I trying to pass a normative judgment on on First Marine Division's actions or you know what what was going on in Kuwait. Obviously, there were there are a lot of contextual issues that that played into the you know the the Marines of First Marine Division pushing through the minefield as fast as they did and then and then, you know, getting into the fight. Um I'm just I'm simply saying that, you know, as as you as you rightly note, systems collapse at the wrong echelon may not result in the the outcome that we're seeking, but MCDP one does not very clearly differentiate between those echelons as Mm -hmm. we're talking about systems. It just suggests everyone everywhere should be looking for systemic collapse, which is a difficult problem.
0: Which yeah, which kind of, I think kind of gets into uh, Lieutenant Colonel Meixner's uh, criticism a couple of weeks back of there there is not really any mention of the joint force uh, in MCDP one. So it, like you said, it doesn't differentiate because if if everybody's trying to collapse all the systems at all the echelons, there, that that's probably not going to achieve the joint force's uh, objectives.
1: Yeah, I think that's entirely fair, I think it's something that, that we have not done a very good job of articulating—at least not in our little white books. Although other other publications, you know, help us work through that. Uh, but you would think our capstone doctrine would also help us work through that. Mm. And so, then to move on to OIF one, which was your second example, we we surely did the joint force surely did collapse the enemy system as they as they drove into Iraq. Although, you know, there there are some interesting debates about how that collapsing worked out for us. Um, Whether that's at the, at the theater command level where where many different uh, tales of the, of the attack into Iraq would say that, that Tommy Franks, the the general in charge of CENTCOM at the time, General Franks uh, had it in his head that that the seizure of Baghdad would collapse the enemy system. And that would kind of be that Um, or at, at far lower echelons where we were collapsing enemy systems of different, different divisions or regiments or or whoever it is we were fighting uh it worked i mean we collapsed the enemy system and then something far nastier shook out of it as we as we saw a whole bunch of armed men make their way back into the populace and decide to take up arms against uh their their nominal liberators you know us Mm -hmm. so that was not that was not well planned for, and and obviously there are a whole lot of issues associated with the planning for for phase four, as, as we called it at the time, you know, uh, or for for the the stability portion of Operation Iraqi Freedom, and it, that was not directly the Marine Corps fault. And again, not trying to pass judgment on anyone who was involved with that, because there there were a host of different issues involved involved there. Um, but clearly, collapsing the military system resulted in something much more difficult for us as we fought for mm. what six years trying to trying to get our get ourselves out of the the quagmire that we created by doing by doing exactly what our doctrine said we should do
0: right which yeah which continues to have you know, ripple effects into the present day that i think reinforces the point you make in the argument that systemic collapse should be seen as one of a few different options and you know to the point you make of made a few weeks ago this kind of virtue virtue vice uh kind of way of seeing maneuver warfare versus other styles of warfare is is harmful there because when we're talking about the the highest the strategic level if you collapse the system at the strategic level who do you then work with to end a conflict and and i think that the 2003 invasion is a good example of that. I mean, if it w- we we did collapse the entire regime system to the point where there really wasn't anybody left to say, OK, that's it, you know, war's over, let's negotiate, uh, you know, a peace settlement. And so we got left then having to create create that government so that we could then negotiate a peace with. And then, uh, of course, you know, the sending sending Iraqis home with weapons without, accounting for them. I think that's outside of the scope of the argument. But nonetheless, uh, there's got to be, you probably, depending on your your strategic aims, there's probably got to be someone left over at the end of the day to negotiate with. That's why I I, I was kind of outside the the topic. But interesting, in the early days uh, of this current phase of the Russo-Ukrainian War, there's a lot of talk about trying that the russians were trying to assassinate zelensky and i thought is that i mean is that really what you want to do at this point i mean who do you who do you negotiate for you know a a ukraine ukraine's surrender if you decapitate their government i don't know Maybe, maybe there's something i wasn't seeing there but of course it also could be the case that the russians just didn't think through that very well
1: It it certainly could be the case. Um, but I mean, to, yeah, to your point and, and back to the, the 1940 example in France. I mean, the, the French, the French army to some degree or another did indeed collapse. But once that happened, you still had Pétain and Wigan and a bunch of, a bunch of senior leadership in France who were the ones who, who concluded the armistice and then established VC France. It's not like the country of France just fell apart. Um, and and so you know again that's our that's our favorite example the blitzkrieg making the French army just disintegrate around our, around it you know around our our ears and everything's falling apart, but everything did not actually fall apart. The French government or some version of the French government remained in place and, and negotiated and and the French people to a large degree continued living their lives, which is is kind of not what happened when we disintegrated the the system in Iraq uh and, and maybe that's that that just lends itself to the point that we need to understand a system far better than we, we currently do before we try to just make it fall apart. Um, and, and the hubris of, of believing that we understand all of the pieces and parts of a given system is is probably going to get us into trouble more often than not. Um, not to say that there weren't people who did understand the Iraqi system and that we just, in the planning phases, we just didn't do a very good job of listening to them.
0: Mm. Yeah, I certainly hope that we have learned that lesson going forward, um, but we'll see. So the, the second major criticism you have in the article is that part of, at least part of maneuver warfare, part of how it's described in MCDP-1 is adapting a German concept uh, that we've translated as mission tactics or that the, the U.S. Army translates as mission command but basically boils down to is I'm, I'm going to tell you what I want you to accomplish and why, but I'm not going to tell you how to do it. And you, you're not necessarily sold on the idea that that's applicable or that we can actually put that into practice in the Marine Corps. Why is that?
1: Well, so I'll say up front, I am, I'm sold on the idea. I mission command is certainly the, the most effective type of command that that we've devised to this point. I mean, you you know, you read some of the classics, Van Krebel's Command and War. I've got got it sitting mm-hmm. on my floor right now and I'm looking at it. Um, you know, you can you can find a number of others that talk about the effectiveness of German mission command. Uh, there was a great article, I think, by Michael Howard called Their Wehrmacht was better than our army, where he he describes a number of the the really interesting issues that we ran into with the Wehrmacht doing mean, it was it was, it was better. It, it, the casualty ratios were better. The things they did were better. They were, they were better than we were. We still won, which is worth noting. Um, but, you know, soldier for soldier, troop for troop, they they were more effective uh, in general than, um, than than the United States Army or the British Army or the French Army, the Soviet Army for sure. Uh, you can find that argu- argument in Van Krebel's Fighting Power as well. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's a number of places where people have made those arguments, and, and I think they're generally accepted to be true. So, if we if we say that, if we, we stipulate that, yes, the German army in World War II was generally better man for man and formation for formation, um, we say, why was that? And one of the, the most convincing explanations is that it was the way they executed their command arrangements. You know, they they told people what to do, not how to do it. They allowed their, their seasoned and intelligent soldiers to, to make decisions on their own. Uh, they decentralized command as far as possible, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, We can, we can, we can certainly stipulate that that is probably the best method of command that we know of at the moment. I think we have a cultural problem where we don't like to do that. Uh, I mean, that's uh, just to lay it out there. We have a cultural problem in the United States, just American culture writ large, although it's very individualistic within its hierarchies, it tends to be awfully restrictive. And we can talk about that. Um, We're, we're currently in a place where society is, is, as a whole is losing trust in institutions across the board. I I just, I read an article that was in the Gazette maybe six months ago or five months ago called Trust Decay that gets at this a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And we, in in the service have seemed to, at least many of us, many leaders within the service have seemed to reacted to those problems with a continued attempt to centralize direction from the top and just say, well, this is a, a blanket policy. This is a blanket direction to everybody. Uh, which is the antithesis of mission, mission tactics. Mission tactics assumes that the, the individual leader closest to the battle, closest to the fight, closest to the problem understands the problem the best and therefore should be able to make decisions based on that problem. Uh, and, and we culturally trend in the exact opposite direction. And there, there are plenty of good reasons for why we trend in that o- opposite direction. Um, uh, I'm not saying there are not, but you know, in a, in a world where we, we kind of accept without questioning that there's such a thing as a strategic corporal um, you know, the, the corollary of that is you have to worry about that strategic corporal doing something you don't want. Uh-huh. Right. Because he, he or she may have s- significant strategic impacts that are quite bad. Um, I, I think the service will continue to struggle with this because I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced that we're willing to give the kind of trust to our, to our junior leadership that mission command would truly call for. And then, Obviously, the the flip side of the mission command coin, of course, is there's an ex- exceptional amount of risk that you accept with mission command and mission tactics. When you say, you know, hey, small formation, go do something as as you you think is best. Well, you you may also be, at the same time be assuming that that formation may may get wiped off the map and you may never hear from them again. And that's that's also a risk profile that we're not entirely willing to accept. I think.
0: Hmm. Yeah. For me, a lot of this. I think, and you talk about this in an article, say, do you gap, you know, if a, if, if as leaders, we wave white books, um, but then at the end of the Liberty formation, we say, okay, I need all your heart forms before I can trust you to go out, you know, on a, on a long weekend or, uh, heard a, a Sergeant major, a very high, highly placed Sergeant major tell a story once about talking to a young Sergeant over in Okinawa about this Marine's frustrations um, and realizing that the Sergeant Major's 17-year-old daughter had more freedom of movement on the island than this uh, this young NCO. So certainly there's this, this aspect of MCDP-1 is a philosophy and not just a, a how-to, but it's also not just a philosophy for how we fight. I mean, it, it's making the case... That we also have to live this in garrison. It's not just a switch we flip when we go into combat. So I, I agree. There's a lot of, a lot of obstacles to putting that in place. Question: Do you think what you've seen of force design 2030, uh, talent management 2030, any any of the things that we're trying to do right now as a service? Do you think? Do you see any of these potentially? Uh, solving, or at least uh, moving in the right direction, to make mission, mission tactics viable for the Marine Corps. I,
1: I think that's a difficult question, and I, I am admittedly not deep in the, the middle of force design. And I, you know, I, I I do trust that we've got some very smart people who are who are working that and and pointing us in the right direction. That said, I, and I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful that that ta- talent management, and particularly. In particular, will have some some really positive effects on the Marine Corps as it as it gets really established and implemented. Um, I, I, I still think that we have just there's a fundamental tension between our culture and our, our culture in particular more so than the rest of the Joint Force, um, right? I, I I work with you know three other military fellows who rightly think that the Marine Corps is, is quite extreme in its discipline requirements in many different ways and, and they're probably right. Um, you know, but, but those extreme discipline requirements teach us to, to basically force extreme discipline throughout the, the service, which, you know, that that's one, a different way of phrasing, uh, we're going to keep you from making decisions cause you might make a decision we don't like. And, and I think that inherent tension is something that we're not going to be able to, to just, to just hand wave away. You know, I, our culture is quite resistant to our doctrine, which is a problem. Um, the way it's dealt with it to this point is it's kind of co-opted the language of our doctrine, right? We, we use the language of, of mission tactics and we, we, we say things as if um, they're obvious, but when when younger Marines look back up the chain to the people who are saying those things, they don't see it, just as you described. The, the you know, an NCO on Okinawa who doesn't have the, the ability to decide if he or she should make a decision to, to drink a beer On a weekend because you know he might get in trouble well okay i I get it there's strategic implications and and that marine may make a bad decision it is important to allow those marines our marines the latitude to make bad decisions in places that aren't in combat um if we're going to assume that they're going to make good decisions in combat as well
0: absolutely and you know i get that this is easy for me to say as someone who's not a commander and and doesn't Shouldered these responsibilities, but I I'm a firm believer that people's behavior rises to the level you know of the way they're treated. So if you treat someone like a child, they're going to behave like a child. If you treat them like an adult, they're going to behave like an adult. And I understand that there's always you know there, there's always individuals that that's not going to be true for uh, that ruin it for everyone else. But I I do think overall as a service, the more we the more we treat everybody as a responsible individual the more they'll act like it
1: yeah i I agree with that and and i would say having recently come from i and i and you know being one half of a reserve battalion command team i would say that the marine corps reserve is actually far better at this than the active forces um it it, obviously it's been a minute since i've been in the active force because i was with the, the reserve force but you know reserve marines do not have anywhere near kind of the the camp counselor sort of environment that we, we sometimes put on our, our active Marines. If a reserve Marine messes up, he or she is going to jail and no one's going to save him or her. If a reserve Marine messes up and they forget to pay their rent, they're not going to be living in their apartment and there's not much we can do about it. You know, they they live actual lives outside of the Marine Corps. And because of that, I find that they're they're in many ways more effective independent decision makers because they are really familiar with the, in, the effects of their independent decisions in civilian life I think we would we would be a more effective force if we went that direction um, and relax some of the, the kind of the most stringent disciplinary requirements that we have on a day-to-day basis uh, but I, I think that is a really difficult cultural lift and, and I'm not sure that we'll get anywhere near that that kind of cultural change in my career and in probably in your career and who knows how much longer it would take if we even thought it was necessary.
0: Yeah. It's certainly not something you can, uh, that any one commandant or any, any one particular leader can just say, well, this is what we're doing now. And, and everybody just you know, marches out and it's, it's going to take, it's, it's more like, you know, cranking that flywheel, getting some momentum on it. hundred percent. So, uh, 100%. Getting kind of near to the end of our, our conversation here, it's been noted in a lot of places, including your article, that we haven't revised MCDP 1 since 1997. And even at the time the 1997 revision came out, General Krulak said basically, we, we need to do this again and soon. You know, if you read Ian Brown's book, uh, A New Conception of War, almost as soon as FMFM 1 was written, Void was calling up John Schmidt, saying, "Okay, now you got to revise it, right? Because you can just never let this become stagnant." So, what do you think a revised MCDP one should look like?
1: That's a great question. Um, you know, I when I when I wrote the article, I took a, a bit of an incremental approach and said, "Hey, we need we probably need to you know wrap systemic collapse in with defeat mechanisms. We probably need to rethink our." Our command and control requirements for the for the information age, understanding that this idea of mission mission tactics based on you know a bunch of a bunch of Germans running around France is is probably outdated and we can do better. But it's going to take people smarter than me to, to incrementally fix MCDP one. I I think there there may be some utility in in relooking the our doctrine structure in general. Um, as you said, you know. Maybe MCDP-1 is a good starting place as a philosophy, and maybe we, we just make it clear that this is an aspirational philosophy, and we understand that this is not where we are right now, and someday we hope to get there, although it's been 30 years and we haven't gotten there yet. That, that may be a good, a good direction to go with that MCDP. I do think, and I made a note to myself to, to mention it, I think the, the publishing, publishing of MCDP-1 type 4 is, is actually an interesting development as well. That's, um, that's competing. And to some degree, if you think about that pub, it's, it actually su- supersedes MCDP-1 in several ways because it is a much bigger publication. It's talking about mm. MCDP-1 is warfighting. Competing is talking about a whole lot more than just warfighting, mm-hmm. right? So in, in some ways, maybe that is starting to supersede MCDP-1 in, in a lot of important ways where it's talking about all of the things we're doing basically all of the time whenever the bullets are not flying. Now, it, doesn't, it doesn't get into training. It doesn't get into personnel. It doesn't get into some of the things MCDP-1 does get into. Um, but competing may be a step forward for, for how we need to look at, look at our, our future doctrine as, as far as actual war fighting. I'm, I'm not sure that, that having a white book like MCDV1 does much for us because we're, you know, the the nuts and bolts of an infantry battalion or the nuts and bolts of an infantry company are going to be all the other publications that, that specify how you put your, how you place your machine guns and, you know, how, how you execute this kind of attack. And, and the training is going to reinforce that. And what you're not going to get a lot of is is probably MCDP one, at least like like we would see it in a world where in the perfect world that you might envision when it was published. I, I've been writing this paper that hopefully we're we're going to be sending off to Joint Force Quarterly in in the next few weeks week or two, uh, and a lot of it is about how uh, how the military culture inherently sees change and innovation and adaptation is deviant because the culture is is it is what it is right and so anything outside of the culture is inherently deviant Um, and i i think that's a good a good way to describe what we've got going on in mcdp1 where basically our culture is a discipline culture we like spit and polish we like we we seek certainty bureaucracies and hierarchies seek certainty so i i want certainty about everything my subordinates are doing And, and unfortunately the information age has completely enabled that uh, and so we're in a place where our culture desires only certainty about what all of our people are doing and our doctrine requires literally the exact opposite. And again, without, without some significant cultural change that I, I don't know how to instantiate, we're, we're going to be at an impasse. Hmm.
0: Well, yeah, I think we'll, we'll have to see as we continue the, you know, the campaign of learning for force design 2030 and particularly i think uh to your point about the culture and about the the maturity required uh whether there's a, an element that uh, this talent management 2030 and the the aspirations there whether that can you know bring that closer to reality or not um but it's you know share your uh your skepticism as to as to whether or not we can um Okay, well, I think that that does it for today. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time to, out of your your, I'm sure your, v- vigorous schedule of of reading and writing as as part of this uh, fellowship, to uh, talk with us. So, sir, uh, enjoy the rest of your day and have a good weekend.
1: Yeah, I appreciate your time. It's fun talking to you.
0: Thank you for listening to Tactics and Operations. As part of Marine Air Ground Task Force Training Command, Marine Air Ground Combat Center 29 Palms, MCTOG supports the Marine Corps ground combat element and the Fleet Marine Force as a whole through the delivery of advanced individual and collective training. If you would like to know more about the great things going on at MCTOG, you can find us on social media on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Marine Corps Tactics and Operations Group. Until next time.